before we get into our discussion tonight specifically about Noah's Ark, I'd like to make a couple of comments about this topic in general and why we've spent a few weeks talking about science versus God and wanted to give you some information on the topic so that if somebody approaches you and says, I don't believe the Bible because of X, Y, Z in science, I'd like for you to know that there are some answers for that and that we as Bible believers don't need to shy away from that conversation. Uh, In John chapter 5, if you get that in your left hand, get in your right hand Romans chapter 5, and I want to show you why this this topic is something that we need to be at least familiar with and have our heads wrapped around to a certain extent. John chapter 5, verse number 45. And before we dive into that, let's go ahead and bow our heads and let's pray together. Father, thank you this evening that you do love even me, even us. Father, thank you for already a good day in uh, the house of God. And we ask you please allow us to have a good time tonight as we look at this subject. We, we believe, Lord, as you told us that this event happened I pray that you would please let the Spirit of God now guide us into all truth and prepare us to give an answer to those that might have a question about it. Father, bless the lesson tonight for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, John chapter 5 and verse number 45. John chapter 5 and verse 45. Jesus says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom ye trust. So understand that Jesus uses Moses and the books that Moses wrote as a bit of a foundation for his ministry. What he's saying is, if if you want to uh, accuse me of something, then you can also refer to Moses as a bit of an authority to see if I'm right or if you're right. So Moses is used as as a, a, a measuring rod to an extent. In verse 46, and when I say Moses, understand, I'm talking the books of Moses. Verse 46, For had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if ye believe not his what? Writings, how shall ye believe my words? There's a few things that I think we could and we should mine from that. Number one, Jesus believed in his day that he still had the writings of Moses. Isn't that something? 1,500 years after they were written, Jesus says we still have access to them. I believe we still have access to them today. I believe they have been preserved from the generation they were given until this time and forevermore. But notice that Jesus says if you don't believe what Moses wrote, how are you going to believe what I said? So we would expect, therefore, the devil to make a full-on attack at the words of Moses. Specifically, the early chapters of the book of Genesis where we don't have a lot of other historical records, and there are reasons for that, we do rely on the authenticity. We, we trust that Moses had authority from God to write on those things that happened way back there in the days of Noah and even before that, Adam and Eve and all of that. We do believe that God showed those things to Moses. Sure, there were... Uh, let's say stories passed down from one generation to the next, but it was the Lord God Almighty that stepped in and told Moses exactly what to write. So in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, we have the story of creation, we have the story of the fall, and then by the time we get to Genesis 6, 7, and 8, 9, you have the story of the flood and Noah and his family coming out. So those are the things that are going to get challenged the most. Look at Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Now why is it important to keep Moses 
uh, let's say, established in our thinking here, Romans 5 in verse 12. Romans 5 in verse 12. Paul writes, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. I think you and I as Bible believers, we don't really struggle when we read that verse, do we? We read that and we say it's obvious. Uh, obvious. Yes, of course. That's just Genesis chapter 3, right? I mean, we can even maybe stretch that back to Genesis 2. The day you eat thereof, you'll surely die. So how did death enter into the world? By one man sinning, and then that man passes on that sinful nature to all of mankind, and now, as a result of sin, death enters the world. So what's the order? Man, sin, death. But if you're an evolutionist, you cannot accept that. As an evolutionist, you have to flip that around and say there was death, and after several million years of death, eventually nature selected a way to survive longer than the generation before, and now we're getting better and better and stronger and bigger and smarter. And, and so we're trying to find a way to overcome death. Evolution's answer to that is natural selection. Evolution, by natural selection, will choose whichever genes, whichever traits help us survive the best. And this is where the, as I said it tongue-in-cheek, but there's a little bit of truth to it. We were monkeys, then we're humans, and before long we'll be robots. Because that's how you overcome death. Serious. I mean, that's exactly where this thing is, is pointing. But biblically, we have a different answer to death. In the Bible, there was man, man sinned, and then there's death. So in the evolutionary scheme, you have a lot of death, a lot of death, a lot of death, and then eventually man shows up, right? Because you have all sorts of organisms from the bacteria, and then you have the reptile, the, the fish, the reptiles, the, the birds, and then the mammals, and then mankind. You have a lot of things dying off before anybody develops a, a system of morals and starts to make religions and write things down and say this is a sin and this is not. So they have death, right? And then it slowly, a lot of death, and then eventually you get sin coming in later on. Biblically, we see it the other way around. So biblically, we're going to look for a different answer to death. We look at it and say there's nothing we can do. We sinned, we're going to die. The wages of sin is death. We have to have help from the outside to overcome death. And that's exactly what we see in the Bible. God sent His Son to overcome death. So evolution's answer to the problem of death and sin and, and evil in the world is going to be very different than how a Bible believer would, would approach that. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3. So if evolution is right, and there was a lot of death that took place before there was a, anything close to what we would know as a man, then the Bible can't be right. It wasn't by man that sin entered into the world and death by sin. Then that's not right. So you will find some people that say, but I'm a Christian and I'm an evolutionist. And they call themselves theistic evolutionist. And they will say that God created everything, but then God also uses the mechanism of evolution to bring about mankind. That God put the first forms of life out there, but God programmed it to eventually evolve into man. But if that's the case, then there was a lot of death before man showed up and sinned. And that doesn't match the Bible. So we, I, if you're going to be a Bible-believing Christian, you can't go down that path and try to mix in evolution with it. The Bible's quite explicit on that. There was man, sin, death. Now, 2 Peter chapter 3, almost 2,000 years ago, I find it interesting that Peter, 
he prophesied very well here. He nailed it. Verse number 4, 2 Peter 3, verse 4, talking about the end times and saying, uh, forgive me, let's read verse 3 with it, forgive me. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. That's going to... uh, loom large in our conversation tonight, in our lesson tonight. This is something that in the late, late 1700s, early 1800s, is something called the uniformitarianism, or the steady state theory, where all things have just continued on without any major catastrophes as they were since the beginning of the universe, basically. Verse 5, Peter says, For this they willingly, key word, willingly, are ignorant of. They don't even want to take time to study this possibility. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. Now you can maybe make a note if you're taking notes. Genesis 1 verses 9 and 10. This is where God, the earth was originally covered in water. Right on day 2, God made the firmament. That's day two, right? Day one, let there be light. Day two, let there be space. A firmament in the midst of the waters. So there was water covering the earth and then there was water above the heavens. That water was completely covering the earth. On day three, God receded some of the waters and the dry land appeared. That's what we're reading here. The earth standing out of the water and in the water. Right? That's Genesis 1, verse 6. Whereby the world that then was, Genesis 1 to 5, the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. So the the pre-flood world, which we read about in verse 5, by the time you get to verse 6, it perished. It was destroyed in Noah's flood. And the Bible tells us here that the scoffers in the last days will be willingly ignorant of that topic. And when you factor in that there was a major, global, worldwide catastrophe it clears up a lot of the scientific objections and scientific evidence that they use to say that the earth is very old and therefore evolution is possible. It really does help paint a a clearer picture of how things were. So tonight, what we're going to try to do is go through several of the questions that often come up uh, with this subject about Noah and the flood. So go ahead, if you don't mind, bringing up that first slide. And I will... Just introduce the questions as we go. May you please turn your Bible to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. I'm not a geologist. I'm not a paleontologist. I'm reminding you again. I'm I'm limited and I recognize my limits as to discussing these things in great depth. This is why a couple times tonight I have embedded some, some videos... Uh, from a ministry of Ken Ham, if you're familiar with that name. He has built a life-size ark in Kentucky. My, my sister lives about 30 minutes away from it. I've been to this structure twice. It's an amazing structure, and they have a really good ministry there. So I've, I've used a couple of short videos. I'll let them do some of the explaining because I think they could do it better than, than me, and then I'll try to address some other aspects of this. All right, so the, the first question that I, I want to discuss is this one. How could the ark and its passengers survived this event. I know there are many, question, many sub-questions that come to that. Were the waters too hot? 
Some people say the waters became hundreds of degrees Celsius you know, with, with heat, and that's too much for the, for the uh, ark. I, I, there's really not any good science for that. That's just somebody saying maybe the water heated up and it was boiling, and I, I don't know how they could possibly get that out, outcome or that conclusion, but they, they raised that. They say perhaps with this, with this many volcanoes going off and with this much rain coming down, there would have been instability and the waves would have been too big and no boat could have possibly survived it. And even if the boat would have stayed intact, what about everybody inside? Any structure that's getting thrown around that much, everything inside would have died. It would have just banged around too much. So how could the ark and its inhabitants survive the flood? Well, I have perhaps an oversimplified answer to that. Get ready. It was built properly. That's... Didn't Jesus give us uh, uh, some words on this? He said, if you build a house upon a rock, the storm and the floods come, and it beats upon the house, but the house stands. But if you build it on the sand, same storm's going to come, but it'll fall. So it all depends on how you build it. If you build it according to God's Word, it stands. That's what Jesus taught us. So I'm using that same logic here. If you build it properly, it will withstand all the factors of the flood. Look at Genesis 4. Look at verse number 21. Uh, 22, forgive me. 22. Talking about the sons of Cain and his descendants. says, And Zillah, she also bare Tubal-Cain, an instructor in every artificer in brass and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Now, the reason I point this out, you have people that handle the harp and the organ in the verse before, such as handle uh, cattle in verse number 20. So different, let's, can we say, uh, spheres of industry, right? You have your livestock, you have the music, you have entertainment. All of that's part of the early civilization. But you, all have, you also have engineering. The, these people were not bad engineers. There's no reason to think that. Don't let the ev- evolutionary museums infiltrate your mind on this and make you think that people that live Three, four thousand years ago were cavemen walking around. <laughs> That's, you know, banging on stuff with rocks. That's not how it was. These, these men were incredibly intelligent. We have some incredibly intelligent people in this room tonight. We have several people with university degrees, some that teach at university. We have some engineers in the room tonight. Now, with your limited experience, and I say limited just by your number of years on the earth, you're limited. Some of you have been in the, in the field for 20 years, let's say. All right, you can learn a lot in 20 years. Am I right about that? At 20 years at your job, you learn a thing or two. You could probably make some improvements in your field if you're industrious. Imagine what you could do if you worked hard and had all the energy you need for 50 years. Take 50 years of experience in engineering. By the time you get to 50, if you still had the energy that you had when you were 20 combined with the wisdom of 50 years of experience, imagine what you could do. All right, times that by 10. Noah was 500 when he started building the ark. You say, well, he wasn't an engineer. Number one, you don't know that. You don't. But number two, there were engineers. Nobody said Noah built it alone. Noah could have easily said, listen, I'm a farmer. We know that he was at least a husbandman. We know that from after the flood. So there's nothing to say that he couldn't have co-opted this and said, let me get some laborers in here and I'll pay them using the resources I do have and we'll build this ark using my, my plans that God gave me. So to say that they didn't have the engineering expertise necessary, 
Well, they had people that knew some things about engineering, and they had the architect, the grand architect, God, telling them exactly how to build it. So to say that Noah was able to build it properly, I don't think that's stretching it too far at all. All right, so I'm going to show you this video. I don't think I need to explain anything further because the video is going to do it. So hopefully you'll see my te technological expertise here. I'm going to push a button. I hope it works. <laughs> we, we've been working all day to make this part of it work. So let's see if it works. Boop. Okay, here we go. They told me to wait five seconds. This is when the magic happens. Is the Bible the only source for the worldwide flood? I'm standing here in the Flood Legends exhibit at the Ark Encounter, an exhibit that tells us the answer to that question is absolutely not. Uh, there are hundreds of legends from around the globe about a worldwide flood. And it's interesting because they have many of the same details. They'll talk about how God or the gods were angry with humanity uh, because of something that humanity was doing. And so the the one God or many gods said they're going to destroy the earth and they warned one family or one righteous person to build this vessel and whether it's a raft or a canoe or, uh, or the ark itself like you read in the Bible and then they're going to have all the animals that they have to bring on board and then the flood comes, wipes out every single person on the earth except for the people on board that vessel and uh, sometimes at the end of it they even send animals off to, to determine how deep the water is or they even have a sacrifice afterwards or there's a rainbow mentioned at the end of it and we have all of these similarities and skeptics will look at that and say well that's just because the Bible copied from ancient flood myths or it's because missionaries went to these different places and while that idea could account for some of the similarities in the accounts it could never explain all of the many differences in those accounts for example the ark itself the Bible is the only one that gives us a, a vessel that has the proper dimensions to survive and keep its passengers safe. Uh, you might have heard of the Epic of Gilgamesh. It's a, an enormous cube that's seven levels deep and it, the flood lasts for a total of seven days. A worldwide flood in seven days is implausible and that vessel would rock so badly from side to side the passengers would never live through it. The Bible is the only one that gives us the dimensions of, an, of a vessel that would survive and keep its passengers safe. And the notion that missionaries would have gone to these different places and spread all of these wrong ideas about the flood, all of those differences between the Bible and the other flood accounts, doesn't make any sense. Why would Noah's name in one culture be six to eight syllables long rather than just Noah? The biblical account makes perfect sense of that. That is, that as people scattered from Babel, they took that history with them of the worldwide flood, and generation after generation as they pass that down, it's kind of like the telephone game. These little differences creep in generation after generation. That's where you get those differences but that kernel of truth is still there. Speaking of Babel, that's the place where people were building that infamous tower where God came down and confused their language, forcing them to scatter around the globe. And did you know that we have nearly two dozen Babel myths or legends from around the globe as well, from these ancient cultures, many times with a lot of the same details, but again, those differences, just like we saw with the flood legends, and it's not just the flood and Babel. We also have creation myths about how man was made from the dust of the ground, just like we read in Genesis chapter 2. And then these myths will talk about how the great spirit breathed on him or this wind came along and made him alive. Again, very similar sounding to the biblical account, but differences as well. And then we also have dozens and dozens of accounts of the reason that man dies or the reason that man became sinful has something to do with a tree and or a serpent. That is found all over the globe. So you have these details throughout Genesis 1 through 11 that are found in these ancient cultures and 
yet they don't know anything about Genesis 12 onward. How do we explain that? Well, from a biblical perspective, it makes perfect sense. When God confused the language at Babel and he scattered them around the globe, they took that history, that shared history that they had, they took it with them and passed it down generation after generation. And some of those details get twisted, some of them are forgotten, that's why you have those differences. And yet again, that kernel of truth is still there. While those many legends give us just pieces of the truth, God's word gives us the whole truth. And that is that man was exceedingly rebellious before the flood and God determined to wipe them out with a worldwide flood, yet he showed his grace and mercy to Noah and his family and representatives of each of the land animals on board the ark. To find out more about those flood legends and the true history of our world, which is revealed in Genesis, in Scripture, God's inspired word, come to the Ark Encounter and go to arkencounter.com. See if I can get to the next one. There we go. There are actually approximately 350 different Ark stories from all over the world. Now, as he mentioned, they're not the same as the Bible story, but the Bible tells us why that would be. As he's mentioned, the, after the confusion at Babel, they take the story of creation and all the way up to the flood, and then they go all over the world spreading the story, but the story gets changed a little bit, which accounts for all the variations. But there's so many stories of it, it makes it hard to believe that it didn't happen. Right? We just need to find which account would be reliable. And as they've said, they've run those... When you take the Epic of Gilgamesh and the Akkadian story and all those various versions of the arcs, they ran them through simulators. And none of them would be able to survive the, the flood or the, the uh, people in the structure wouldn't have lasted. But the, the ark from the Bible does make it through those simulations. So I think we can trust the Bible on, on that. So our next question is this. How did all the animals and their necessities, their food and their fresh water, how did they fit in the ark? Now maybe you've heard this from some skeptic before. You know, how did, how did Noah get all the animals in the ark? And uh, the question that you want to ask them is how many animals were in the ark? Right? You, you answer their question with a question and see if they know how many animals were in the ark. We don't know. We're not told. So to say, how could Noah fit them all in the ark? I don't believe in the ark story because you couldn't fit all the animals. You first need to know all the facts. So the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 6 and Genesis chapter 7, when it comes to unclean animals, you bring two. When it comes, uh, comes to clean animals, you bring seven pairs. So 14 of each clean animal. Now, I went to a polemical website that's somebody that's against the idea of Noah's Ark and I, I tried to find what they had to say about the number of animals that would be necessary to re-speciate the planet, to refill the planet with all the species. Now remember their focus is on the species and not the kind. You might remember from last week I think we talked about that a kind is a larger broader category. Most of the enemies of, this, uh, of the Bible will look at the species. So they say that in order to repopulate the planet with all the species we have today, you need 3,858,920 animals. And of course, the way they put it, that's at a minimum. Okay, I, 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 that, they're, they're stretching things, I believe. When you look at the other side of this, I've read some creationist books that'll say you, you maybe could have 10,000 
8,000. I saw one book that said you could get by with 5,000 animals in the ark. And from those 5,000 animals that represents all the kinds, you would have enough animals to start repopulating and refilling the earth and then the variations would over time spread out to create all the species we have. Now the evidence of that is mankind itself. Right? You, you, we can just, we can notice this within our own families. We, mom and dad, my grandmother was the oldest of 16 children. Right? We were good Catholics. <laughs> so grandma was the oldest of 16. By the time my grandmother had her first child, her mom wasn't done having babies yet. There's a massive amount of variation that comes within the family. And that's within 50 years. And from that, you have variations upon, varia upon variations. You don't need maybe two, three hundred years, and you can explode into tens of thousands with all sorts of variations, short, tall, and darker skinned, and lighter skinned. And There's a lot of room for variation in that. So to say that the ark wouldn't have room for all the animals, that, number one, you need to know how many animals. And number two, ask them how big was the ark rarely will you find a skeptic that can tell you exactly how big the ark was. Right? So there was a man named Dr. Wood Marape that put out a book on this. He said if you take the square meterage of the ark, compared with, and, and he came out with the middle number there, about 8,000 animals is what you would need, and, and plus all the food, fresh water system, all of that that you would need, space for the waste of the animal, because you've got to account for that, and, and a disposal system, at the ark encounter, they actually set up a model of how Noah could have disposed of the waste and brought in sunlight and brought in fresh air. All of that's accounted for. Wood Marape said, you could fill the ark with the animals, the food, etc., and only have used 47% of the ark's capacity. The rest of it is still open space. All right, so before I try to explain any further, let me turn it back over to this gentleman, and he'll explain further how big the ark was. How big was Noah's ark? The Bible tells us in Genesis 6.15 that God told Noah the length of the ark would be 300 cubits, its width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. Of course, the question is, what's a cubit? A cubit is this measurement from your elbow to the tip of your longest finger. Now, if Noah was my height, I'm pretty tall, uh, that would be a 22-inch cubit, meaning the ark would be even bigger than this one. There are plenty of, of cubits from the ancient Near East, anywhere from about 16 and a half, 17 inches, up to about 19 and a half inches. And what we noticed is that many of the ancient, the major building projects, like temples and other things, were built on what's called a royal cubit or a long cubit, which is this measurement, and then you add the width of four fingers, so about 2.9 or 3 inches. So we took one of the shorter of the common cubits, 17 and a half inches, and then we added 2.9 inches, which gives you a 20.4 inch royal cubit. That would give us an arc of 510 feet in length, 85 feet wide, and 51 feet tall, for a total of 1.88 million cubic feet. Uh, that's when you subtract for the curvature of the hull. And uh, so it's quite massive, uh, making it, as far as we know, the largest wooden ship on record. If you think of a, a semi-trailer, uh, you would be able to fit 450 of those within that amount of space. And when you're thinking about how many animals can fit within each of those semi-trailers, uh, if you were to pack them in pretty well, you could actually fit 120,000 sheep. Of course, Noah didn't need that many animals uh, so yes, he could fit the number of animals on the ark that he needed to. We're standing near the midpoint of the ark between decks two and three, and this gives you a great view of how big the ark is, how long it is. From this point to the very end, it's about 250 feet. 
We're on a platform that's about 18 feet long, and if you were to turn around and look all the way back the other direction, it's another 242 feet, which gives you an arc of 510 feet in length. And you can see some of the massive timbers that were used here as well. This one, this Engelman spruce, that goes all the way up to the top and down to the bottom floor, so stretching over 50 feet in length, and some of these can be over three feet in diameter. And then we've also got our Douglas fir, uh, a lot of these columns and headers like this one. You're also walking on bamboo, which a lot of people don't realize that, but it's pretty cool. Uh, there's so much wood th used throughout this entire structure. In fact, if you were to put it all together, it's 3.1 million board feet, which is a 12 inch by 12 inch square by one inch thick. And if you were to lay all that out end to end, it would stretch from here to Philadelphia by highway or actually as the crow flies from here to New York City. And you know what, you gotta come check it out for yourself. So depending on where you're watching this, you can click on the link below or check it out in the description. Sorry for the Americanism at the end there. He's in Kentucky and all the way to New York. An American would appreciate that maybe better, but I would encourage you to go to their website because they do have some very interesting uh, information there. All right, come to Genesis chapter 7 and verse 11. So can you appreciate the size of the ark from seeing that? 450 semi-trailers. That's a lot of space in, in that ark. Uh, Genesis chapter 7 Verse 11, we're going to deal with this question now. Where did all the water come from and where did it go? The reason this is an issue is because if, it, if you take rain coming down, even a hard rain for 40 days and 40 nights, they, the estimate is you would not be able to cover the world in water and, and flood it all the way above the mountains. 40 days and 40 nights of rain is not enough water to cover the earth. So how do we answer that? Where Does the Bible give us any information about that? Uh, and then we'll talk about where did it go? How, how did all that water uh, evaporate in the time that the Bible says that it did? Genesis 7 and verse 11. It says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. Two things happened there. So we, we acknowledge a few verses later, 40 days and 40 nights of rain coming down, that this is true. But that is not the only source of the water. You also have the fountains of the great deep being broken up. And we have to factor that in. Even right now today, I, let's be clear about this, marine scientists, the ones that do the deep dives, they know very little about our oceans. Uh, they say that out there in outer space, 96% of it is unknown. Now, I don't even know how they come up with that number because how do you know what you don't know, right? Um, seems like you'd have to know what the 100% is before you could make that claim. But they say 96% of it, we don't even know what it is. So they're looking at something, but they, they don't even know how to classify it. They also say we know even less about our oceans. Because it's easier to go into space than it is to go deep diving deep, deep to the bottoms of the oceans. But just from what they've been able to discern, there are over one million submarine volcanoes. That is, underwater volcanoes. Now that's present day. We're not sure when, before Noah, perhaps there was a different number. But do, when the flood began to take place, first of all, the fountains of the deep were broken up and the windows of heaven get open. Right? So there's water that's going to be coming up and water coming down. So when the fountains of the deep are broken, you would have underwater volcanoes 
going off. And this is going to heat up the ocean floor. It's also going to heat up the water. Now, a couple things you want to know about this. Come back to Genesis chapter 1. and Look at verse number 10. Uh, well, let's get verse 9 with it. Forgive me. Genesis 1 verse 9. And God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto how many places? Unto? One place. And let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters called he seas. And God saw that it was good. It, appear, it appears that there was one supercontinent. So today we have seven continents, but before the flood it appears that there was one big continent. And verse 9 is used quite often to prove that because the land was gathered, gathered unto one place. See that? So they call this the Pangea. That's their name for that one big supercontinent. But then when the fountains of the deep get broken up, the tectonic plates down there begin shifting and moving, and there's earthquakes all over, and the ocean floor becomes unstable, and the continents begin to drift. So if you look at a globe, you can look at how South America might fit like a, the pieces of a puzzle into Africa and how part of America and Europe might have fit together. And they probably did at one point. They probably did. But during Noah's flood, the ocean floor was so unstable, these continents would have rapidly drifted. Now today they say, but the continents are still slowly drifting. And we're talking millimeters every year, just barely. Again, not sure how they measure that. But nevertheless, they say that they're still drifting. But during Noah's flood, they would have moved quite rapidly. Now, as the water begins to heat up, right, hot water produces hot air above it. As the hot air rises, cold air rushes in underneath. Right? Hot air rises, cold air comes underneath, and it creates a superstorm. So we all know about typhoons, and we know about hurricanes. But no one has ever been able to duplicate or replicate what we read about in Genesis 7, potentially, who knows, hundreds, thousands of underwater volcanoes going off all at once. How hot was the ocean? We're not sure. But it was hotter than what we would normally consider it. And if the water gets up to 45 or 50 degrees, it would have produced enough hot air to rise and enough cold air coming in. And it would have not been a hurricane, but what they would call a hypercane. That's a hypothetical thing. No one's ever been able to replicate that, nor do we want that to be replicated. It's a massive storm. These could have been going off all over the globe, or at least in several places. So what happens during a hurricane, right? You get precipitation being thrown up the funnel, and then the, the wind throws the rain out. And the rain, the water can hit all over the place. So the rain, the way we see it now, comes from what we call the troposphere, right? Where the clouds are. That's the troposphere. But a hypercane could be so strong from the hot air rising and the cold air flowing in, so strong, it would have thrown the precipitation up beyond the troposphere into what we call the stratosphere. And in the stratosphere, it's extremely cold. The precipitation, the rain would have frozen and it could have been thrown thousands of kilometers. So this would account partially for the ice age that followed. And if you factor in, and this is where I'm getting a bit out of my depth, I admit, but when you factor in the temperatures post-flood and how the continents had moved, there is reasonable evidence that there was an ice age for about three, 400 years after Noah's flood. Not all over the world, but in the northern part of like Canada, Russia, and down in the southern part where Antarctica is. And you can still see part of that today. There's still 
ice caps and glaciers and all of that stuff. That, those are just remnants of, of the aftermath of Noah's flood. All right, so if you have these hypercanes going off, that is throwing water up and out. Right? But also, they dug down, and this is what scientists have found out today, you can dig down into the earth and find something called wadsleyite. Wadsleyite. And they say in this mineral, there is water trapped in there. And under the right conditions, when enough pressure is exerted, that mineral will release its water. And there's enough water in the Wadsleyite to fill ten oceans. So where did the water come from? It's down beneath. And when the, when the deeps were broken up, you got water coming up out of the Wadsleyite, then the water being thrown all over the planet, plus the windows of heaven are broken, the clouds are raining... So it's not just 40 days and 40 nights of extreme rain, but you have a lot of water from within being thrown up and then back down. That's where you get all the water to fill the earth. Where does it go after it's done? It gets reabsorbed over time back into the Wadsleyite, and that is what they are currently finding. All right, so we're going to move on to another topic. How old would the earth appear as a result of this event? Perhaps I can reword that question. Does the global flood affect the question of how old the earth is? Does it affect how we would view that? So as I mentioned earlier, the popular belief is called uniformitarianism. Nothing big has ever happened. There's not been any catastrophes. We believe that there has been. So if you think that everything is going on as it has since the beginning of the creation, you would be able to study the decay of certain rocks and just certain events, or certain things, and see that every year it loses this much, or every year it grows this much, and then just extrapolate that backwards and say, well, it's been here for that long. Well, that's the same as saying if you have a cup of water and you have a faucet dripping into the cup, right? And, you, and, and every, every second, one water drop goes into the cup. Well, you can do some math there and start to say, what's the volume of the cup? How much water enters the cup per second? And you can figure out it would take this long to fill the cup. But what if the cup didn't start off empty? Right? What if the cup started half full? Then you wouldn't be able to know how long has the water been dripping. Because if you look at it, now it's full. And you say, well, how long did it take to get full? Did it start off half full? Or did it start off empty? What if the cup was under the faucet and it's drip, drip, drip. It started off empty. But halfway through, Grandma came in, grabbed the cup, dumped the water out, sat it back under there and went, <laughs> And then somebody comes and says, how long did it take to fill the glass? Well, Grandma messed it up. Right? It's a catastrophe. <laughs> so now you have to factor that in. And those are some of the questions that, that the uniformitarianist doesn't account for. Right? They're, they're not going to imagine that there's any sort of catastrophe. We have to factor that in. All right. Let me give you an example, I think, that will help us understand this. Is everything okay out there? All right. In 1980, how many of you heard about this catastrophe, Mount St. Helens? Anybody know about that? Right. In America, in Washington State, up in the northwest, um, Mount St. Helens exploded. It was a, a, a mountain, but it was a volcano, an inactive volcano. It had been inactive for over 100 years. But one day, let's say one day, over some time, over months, people saw it start to swell. So they knew something was coming. When Mount St. Helens erupted, Science got busy then, because they had a lot to study. 
Now, thousands of organisms lost their lives. Humans, livestock, wild animals. It, it was a forest. Complete forests were just... The, the, the massive trees were knocked down and the bark stripped off of it. It was a tremendous event. What they learned from that, though, number one, they saw that as things settled down and the dust from the volcano was uh, dissipating a bit and you know, the fog was clearing, they could tell that rock layers had formed. It wasn't there one day. The next day, there were several different layers of rock that had formed just like that. You could see these same sort of rock formations in the Grand Canyon or in Yellowstone Park. And the scientists were saying, no, no, this took millions of years because little by little, the debris would gather and form these layers, these strata in the rocks. But when Mount St. Helens erupted in 1980, in one day, boom, 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 strata over there. 36 hours, and they had all the strata that the Grand Canyon supposedly took millions and millions of years to form. So right away, the scientist has to backpedal and go, Okay, if a catastrophe happens, it can quickly form what we would say takes millions of years. So, does a catastrophic event such as Noah's Ark and, and the flood, does that factor into the age of the earth? Yes, you have to factor that into this conversation. Furthermore, they were able to see that quick erosion, there was quick, quick forming of strata, but also quick erosion so Mount St. Helens goes off in 1980. In 1982, there was a massive piece of ice that finally melted. And when that piece of ice melted, it starts to slide down the side of Mount St. Helens. When it does, it cuts out a small canyon in one day. It is a miniature about one-fortieth the size of the Grand Canyon in one Day. In some spots it took about five days to fully form the canyon, but in other spots, one day you have an entire canyon with all the layers and everything. It looked like a miniature version of the Grand Canyon, and they watched it happen in one day. Almost as if God was saying, okay, you've been struggling with this, let me give you just a small snapshot. I, I promised that I wouldn't destroy the whole world again. So I'm going to choose a forest that's not so heavily populated and just give you a little bit of evidence. Go study that. They were also able to find, as a result, uh, they were able to learn about petrified wood. So what had happened is these, several of these trees had been knocked down, some of them uprooted, and it began to float in a nearby lake. As time went on, the bark would float away and float off, and the, the logs would become water logs, so heavy with water, that they would float to the bottom or go to the bottom. As they would go to the bottom, some of them would get top-heavy and go into the, to the bottom of the, the lake all the way down into the dirt and divers would later go in and take various pictures and they could see that these petrified trees were actually penetrating various strata. And it happened just in a moment. The, just the log would tip, go down, boom. If you look in various places, Yellowstone, and not just in America, there's other places as well, where scientists say these rock strata that represents millions of years for each stratum, you'll see a tree stuck upright through all these stratum, or strata. The question is, how did one tree survive for millions of years while all the sediment built up around it? Well, the event at Mount St. Helens showed us how that would happen. 
the tree wasn't there and there wasn't sediment building up over millions of years. There was a catastrophic event that led to the tree going right down into the, into the soft bottom of the, of the lake or the ocean and then forming that petrified wood there. All right, so let's, um, let's take a look at this next question. Was the flood local or global? Uh, let, let's take a look at a few verses. Genesis chapter 6, verse 12, please. Genesis 6 and verse 12. Genesis 6 and 12. And you'll even find some Christians that do claim to believe the Bible. And they, I, I, to be honest, I've never heard anybody even come close to giving a satisfactory answer on a local flood. I've heard them you know, put the idea out there, but I, these verses seem abundantly clear. Genesis 6:12, And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Right? God doesn't narrow it down to this one location. He says the earth. Uh, Genesis 7, look at verse 19. Genesis 7, verse 19. And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Not just part of the heaven. Not just one location. The whole heaven. So that sounds pretty global to me. Verse 21. And all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl and of cattle and of beast and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of life, of all that was in the dry land died. That doesn't sound local. Everything died. So actually this, I think, can be um, answered with, with, a, with a question. If the flood was just a local event, why did God not tell Noah to just move? Right? Hey, I'm going to flood this area. Just move to the next town and you're free. I, th- it doesn't make any sense to go through the trouble of building a boat, bringing the animals. Uh, and why bring two of all of them? Just bring the ones in that area, right? It just The local one doesn't make sense. Furthermore, you see evidence of the flood, the fingerprints of the flood, all over the world. The Grand Canyon, Yellowstone National Park, various places like that. But also, the pyramids of Egypt. As of, they, they have since removed these stones. I'll let you try to figure out why. But in 1945, somebody documented that there were watermarks pretty high up on the, on the pyramid. Okay, now there's a good reason to believe the pyramids were built before the flood. There, there are several reasons to, for, for, for believing that. But if the pyramids were there before the flood, how do you explain a watermark around a certain height on the pyramid? At what point was Egypt ever flooded that high to where water would be standing to create a watermark? But somebody saw the watermarks and made notes of it. So there are fingerprints of of the flood, a global flood. You find fossils of fish on the top of Mount Everest. Now think about this for a moment. That's the highest point on the earth. How did a fish get up there? And before you say, well, the hiker was hungry and took the fish and... (laughs) They have found several different kinds of fish and fossils in marine life. Marine life on the top of Mount Everest? At what point was that covered by water? Now the scientists have an answer for that and they say, well, you see what happened was that fossil started off at the bottom, but when the continents begin to clash into each other, which is what forms a mountain, 
And they say even now Mount Everest is still growing little by little. What happened was that fossil that was on the bottom got pushed up and up and up and up and up. and well, You can believe that if you want. As Dr. Lennox, I think, properly pointed out, I prefer an answer that makes sense to one that doesn't. <laughs> the, the idea that there was a global flood that had stuff floating around, dead things floating around, and left the fingerprints, the evidence at the top of the mountain, that seems to be sensible to me. All right, the last question that we'll deal with tonight... Why don't we see more fossils en route to other places? So one of the common questions or arguments that gets brought up with this, the Bible says that the ark rested in the mountains of Ararat. Plural, mountains of Ararat. It's almost as if the ark broke up a little bit and parts of the ark were here and there in the mountains. Whatever the case, in Ararat. That is in what we would today call Turkey. So if all the animals were there... Why don't we see kangaroo fossils on the way to Australia? Because today you only find kangaroos in Australia. So why won't we find kangaroo fossils on the way to Australia? All right, so let me, and, and this goes also for other indigenous animals like the koala, the Tasmanian devil, not the one in the cartoons, the real one, all of that stuff. Uh, forgive me, I didn't get the name of this bird. It didn't make it into my notes, the name of, of the bird, but... There's a bird that went extinct in 1914, and scientists had been tracking this bird up until that time, and they said it was superfluous. It was everywhere. Millions and millions of these birds were, were known and tracked and studied. But 1914, it went extinct. All right, millions. The article I read even said billions, which that's such a big word I'm scared of using it, but it's a lot of those birds. You would expect, having seen the birds, to find how many fossils? Millions. They have found 130 fossils. 130 fossilized bones, that's it. You have to have just the right conditions, the right climate, the right things going on in that area to create a fossil. So when somebody brings up the fossil argument, why aren't we seeing more fossils of this or that? It's not as if everything that dies will always become a fossil. So they're, they're asking for, for evidence, but... They're asking, why aren't we seeing more of this? Well, the absence of evidence doesn't prove something wrong. It's just we don't see those fossils. Okay, what if it's this? As the kind of animal that walks out of the ark that will eventually produce the kangaroo, what if it doesn't look like a kangaroo when it walks out the ark? What if after hundreds of years there are some variations? some adaptations, and by the time it hops over to Australia, it looks like what we now today call a kangaroo. But on the way there, it went through some changes. Because we do, we all recognize that a thing can have some variations as it goes. Well, wouldn't you know it, that they have gone into that part of the world, nearby Turkey. Let me get the name of it for you. I should have circled it. Forgive me, sorry, sorry, sorry. There. <laughs> yeah, there it is. They are called metatherians. Metatherians. So what they found is metatherian fossils nearby Ararat and the surrounding areas. Metatherians, they say, are, are related to kangaroos. Okay, it's not a kangaroo, but it's getting there. 
and it's closely related. And you can look up a metatherian, you can see the kangaroo as a, let's say, a kissing cousin. It's not that far. So to say, why aren't we seeing the fossils? Well, number one, maybe there aren't a lot of bones that made it to the fossilized stage. Okay, maybe. Maybe that's why. But also, there could have been variations along the way. And by the time they get to, to, uh, to, to Australia, now they just look a little bit different. All right, so let's end on, on this. Let's just look at the story of Noah's flood. Is there observable evidence... In the world around us, from what we can see, is the observable world consistent with the biblical story about a worldwide flood? So let me just list a few things off. We, canyons can form quickly with, with a catastrophic, catastrophic event. Right? So that's consistent with a worldwide flood. Rock layers can form. You don't need millions of years. You need one big catastrophic event. We have that. Petrified wood sticking through various strata. We see that. That's consistent with the flood. Watermarks at the tops of high structures like a pyramid. We see that. Ancient, oh, there it is. Yeah. Um, ancient stories about a flood in, in multiple places. If something this massive actually happened and there were survivors that lived through it and would tell the story, wouldn't you expect to find that story being told all over? We do. 350 different versions of it all over the world. So that's consistent with the biblical version. We see fossilized fish and marine life at the tops of mountains. That's consistent with it. And lastly, and I think maybe the strongest evidence, Jesus said it happened. Jesus said it happened. He said, take your Bible and look at Luke chapter 17. This is what he said about Noah's event and this will allow us to end on a practical note. So you're not just taking home a few scientific ideas. Luke chapter 17. Let's look at verse 26. The Bible says, And as it was in the days of Noah, that's the New Testament spelling of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. Jesus refers to the story of Noah as a real event. And then he says, be, be aware of this. That same thing is going to happen again. That, that is, the world will be unaware of what's about to happen, even though he's warning them that it will. And they're just going to go about life as if nothing's ever going to change. Willingly ignorant that the world will perish. It perished in Noah's day with water. One day in the future it's going to perish with fire. Our job as Christians is to hang on to these truths that God has given us and not allow secular and scientific pressure, if we can call it that, to scare us out of our faith in the Word of God. All right, let's all stand. Let's all stand. Father, thank you tonight that we can trust our Bible. Thank you tonight for allowing us to look at a few things that I believe can help us um, have some good conversations with people down, down the road if that opportunity ever arises. Lord, we understand from what you've said that uh, this world is heading for a dark place. And there is another bigger catastrophe coming. And Lord, help us to be busy about your business and getting the gospel out there giving sinners a chance to repent so they can enter the ark which is Christ 
and be saved from what's coming. Father, please bless the fellowship to follow. Thank you for letting us have a good day in your house. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.